Grace, mercy, and peace to you from the blessed Trinity into whose name you were baptized, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This Trinitarian name that we consider on this Trinity Sunday is at the heart of Christian worship. It saturates the divine service from invocation to benediction. It is the essence of our baptism, and it is our object of praise in the glory in excelsis, in the gloria patri, and in the sanctus. However, the doctrine of the Trinity seems to suffer from a lot of neglect today. It has largely been reduced to discussions on Trinity Sunday and perhaps in catechism class. But for the Christian church, the doctrine of the Trinity must be far more than just a dogmatic proposition. He is, after all, the God who created and redeemed and sanctifies us. He is the mystery who gives life to the church's worship. And when we speak of the relationship between the Holy Trinity and Christian worship, we're speaking of the relationship between theology and liturgy. Theology is the theologos, the knowledge of God. Theology is the language of Christ, and the liturgy is the language of the church. So the relationship between theology and worship reflects the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. In other words, theology is to worship as husband is to wife. This defines theology as the source and the life and the strength of our worship. And worship as the beautiful and precious expression and glory of that theology. But when the one flesh union of theology and worship is put asunder, both suffer. And this can be dangerous in several ways. First, Theology is best fulfilled and most profoundly expressed in worship. When they are separated, theology loses its proper expression and becomes just an academic exercise. The triune God is transformed from the omnipotent Father who reveals himself by sending his Son to save us and the Spirit to give us faith into an impersonal object of man's investigation. And theology then teeters on the edge of the abyss of idolatry. Second, worship draws its life and its language from theology. Just like Eve was drawn out of Adam. But when divorced from theology, worship is forced into an illegitimate union, one with sociology. Worship becomes our activity, not God's. And this reduces God to a passive object, and it replaces the activity of the blessed Holy Trinity with the activity of man. For example, some churches have replaced the invocation of God's name at the beginning with a call to worship. And instead of imploring the triune God to then fill the worship with his activity, human beings are called to fill the worship with theirs. Thirdly, when the Trinity is not the focus of our worship, 
Man becomes the object whose wants and whose needs are glorified and satisfied rather than the one whose deepest needs are met by his creator. Worship gets twisted into an unholy contortion that then seeks to create an emotional experience in the individual in order to hold his or her interest. Kind of like a product being marketed. If we take this view then, the purpose of worship is no longer to first convict us of our sins and then to receive the assurance of our forgiveness, eternal life, and salvation as a result of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, but instead is just an attempt to influence our inner mood. This tears us away from receiving God from the eternal word and sacraments and directs us instead to seek Him in the inner experiences of our own hearts. Luther warns against this when he writes the following, To cast aside the external word and baptism is surely the true mark and sign of all false and heterodox spirits. They disdain to hear from him how they are to find him, but they presume to teach and prescribe to him how he should deal with them. End quote. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can never be separated from our worship. All attempts to seek God through our personal experience rather than by His work in us is shallow and false because it seeks God apart from the means of grace. And yet the question still lingers. How do we keep theology and liturgy, that is, our God and our worship, united? and intact. Well, as I said before, it's essential not to reduce God to an academic subject that we think we can learn about and study and eventually master. And so we must not lose true worship, which is not an imparting of knowledge about God, but the revelation of God Himself. We do not investigate God. We do not discover facts about God. Rather, He reveals Himself to us. And worship as the revelation of God becomes clearer to us when we understand three points. God is a mystery. God's name is proclamation. And God's name is confession. Now, in our culture, it seems that there's very little left in the realm of mystery. And that's because instead of admiring a mystery in wonder and in humility, we feel we must know everything about it. Or else we cannot understand it and then we cannot critique it. And then we cannot manipulate it. And so everything gets analyzed to the point that nothing seems to happen without someone giving their observations and opinions about it. And so God gets treated like a political candidate. He's analyzed and he's forced into a neat system that has all of the right answers to all of life's toughest questions. And in such an environment, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not a popular one because in the biblical revelation of God, the Trinity is incomprehensible and therefore impossible to analyze. However, the doctrine of the Trinity is important for the church's well-being precisely because it is beyond our understanding. In the Trinitarian name, God reveals himself to us. He gives us a way of speaking about him, 
so that we can stand in awe of the divine mystery. The words of the hymn properly state it. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. If the church's doctrine and understanding of the Trinity is to be orthodox, and orthodox means correct praise, then it must be spoken of in worship and not just in analysis. The Trinity is to be encountered and confessed, but never figured out. Think of it in this way. Faith in God is not the same as the certainty we can have in, say, chemistry or geometry. God is not the logical conclusion of our reasoning. To believe in God is not to accept His existence because He has been proved to us. It is to put our trust in Him whom we know and who we love for our own existence, for our forgiveness, for our salvation, for eternal life. Faith is, in fact, radically opposed to reason. You see, reason seeks to eliminate the mysteries of God through scrutiny. But faith thrives on God's mysteries, realizing and accepting that He is beyond our comprehension, apart from what He chooses to reveal to us. Remember, if you will, the story of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. The king had a dream and no one in all of Babylon could interpret it. And Daniel himself tells the king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery which the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known what will be in the latter days. And after Daniel explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the king says, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. The point of that text is that God alone is the revealer of mysteries, and God alone reveals what is hidden from men. Now, mystery, as the Bible often uses the term, entails two aspects. First, hiddenness and then disclosure. It refers to that which is incomprehensible to man, but is revealed by God. In the New Testament, the gospel is often referred to as the mystery of God. St. Paul writes this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages... The sacraments, and indeed the entire Christian faith, are mysteries to men and yet revealed to us by God. However, all of these revealed mysteries are not a bunch of disconnected truths. Rather, they are united in the greatest mystery of all, in God Himself. Paul writes to St. Timothy, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. God was manifested in the flesh vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. For Paul, the salvation of man is found in the mystery of God's self-revelation, a mystery that is both revealed and hidden at the same time. 
This concept of mystery has great implications for our time spent together here. Worship is not simply to be a time where like-minded people gather together to analyze God and His work and how that takes place in their individual lives. It is a time when all of us, as the bride of Christ, both individually and collectively, stand in holy awe of the Trinitarian mystery that is ever revealed to us and yet remains somewhat hidden. The divine service is an encounter with God where we stand in unapproachable light, blinded by its brightness and yet seeing more clearly than at any other time. Yet what do we mean when we say that worship is an encounter with God? We mean that worship is the place where the Trinity becomes visible to us in the womb of the church, creating new life in us by repeatedly bringing us Jesus. That is to say, worship is the continuing incarnation of God. And therefore, the content and the focus of our worship must be nothing but Jesus Christ Himself, who is God in the flesh. Hermann Sasse, who was perhaps the greatest Lutheran theologian of the last century, writes the following. Therefore, Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh, is the revelation of God in this world. Only in Him, the eternal Word, does God step out of His hiddenness. He is the content of all the divine Word. His incarnation makes the Word visible. The man Jesus Christ is the visible Word. Whoever sees Him sees God as much as God can be seen in this world. Just as God revealed Himself by hiding in human flesh, so also in worship He reveals Himself to us by hiding in human words, by hiding in bread and wine, by hiding in water. In the Matins Liturgy we proclaim this, Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. And so in worship in the sermon, in the sung responses, in the hymns, in the readings, in the sanctus, in the sacrament, the Holy Trinity is revealing the glory of Himself in the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And the first and most basic revelation that takes place for us in worship is the revelation of God's name. If His name is not known to us, then worship is impossible. In the Old Testament, God comes to His people through the revelation of His holy name to save them and to give them access to Himself. And in the New Testament, the revelation of God's name continues in Jesus Christ, who comes in the name of the Lord. It culminates in baptism with the revelation and the application of the Trinitarian name to those who are, in that very act of God, made part of His body. And finally, in the worship of the Christian church, the Trinitarian name is revealed in invocation, in absolution, and in the word that forms our confession of the faith in the apostles and the Nicene, and yes, even in that long Athanasian creed. The revelations of God's name always find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is God's name made visible for all of us to see. 
He comes in the name of the Lord in order to make the Father known to us as He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. Henceforth, you do know Him and you have seen Him. St. John also writes, No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father... He has made Him known. And so our access to God is given us in His incarnate Son. But our access to God does not end with Jesus' ascension into heaven. In fact, in His ascension, our access is made even greater. Now through the Word and the sacraments, people of all time and in all places can enter into His presence. In other words, the incarnation of Jesus Christ continues today in the worship of the Christian church. This is what we mean when we say that worship is revelation. For worship is the place where God's triune name dwells. It is the place where the Son continues to proclaim the name of God so that man too can confess that name and be saved. Hence in worship, the divine name is proclaimed by God and confessed by us. Therefore, the proclamation of the Trinitarian name is nothing less than the proclamation of the Gospel too. It permeates our worship from the very beginning, continues through the service of the Word and the service of the sacrament, and ends with the benediction. The name was applied to you when God baptized you with water and Word, imprinting it on you in an indelible and mysterious way. It may be invisible to the human eye, but it's fully seen by God. It is revealed to the word, to the world rather, in your proclamation of the gospel, in your service to others. And in fact, your witness is never separated from your worship. Rejoice then on this Trinity Sunday that you have been chosen by God to receive the mystery of his triune name. Beyond any possibility of our comprehension, it is nevertheless fully yours, fully functional, and completely beneficial in making you His child and giving you all that goes along with that. So call upon it every day, in each and every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks as the Catechism teaches us. And trust always in carrying that name upon your forehead, you are seen by God as His child, loved, cared for, forgiven in Christ, and guaranteed the eternal blessings of heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.